You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. Hi, welcome to another edition of uh, Philip Stein Associates from the Midwest to the Middle East podcast. Today I have uh, Lawrence Weinman. Lawrence has worked for over 20 years in the financial markets, advising both institutional and individual investors. He has worked in the Capital Markets Group of Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and Societe Generale, where he headed the Foreign Currency Options Marketing Group for North America. His articles appear at the Seeking Alpha website, as well as his own blog, Sensible Investments. He is currently teaches a class on investment management for MBA students. Uh, Larry, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I also got a chance to do a lecture at uh, Ben-Gurion in the MBA program in English oh. this trip, which was great. Oh. All right, fantastic. Well, you, the work you do in the area that you work in is something of a great deal of interest to my clients. And uh, we're really happy to have you to sort of expand our knowledge and, and get a little perspective. Although my podcast is called From the Middle West to the Middle East, uh, you're, you're a little further west from, from the end of the United States, the West Coast. So I'd like to hear what you'll bring to our, uh, our Middle East listeners and listeners of mine all, all over the world. So let me start with my first question. What, Larry, what brought you to a to a classic U.S. business, it's what I call an investment advisor, and bringing it to Israel. And, and what is unique about being a U.S. investment advisor in Israel or to Israelis? Okay, thank you. So, uh, spending more time in Israel, first, uh, long periods for pleasure, and also to meet with some existing clients I had here, uh, led me to explore business with dual citizens. I also developed a relationship with uh, Debbie Sasson, who lives full-time in Beit Shemesh, she has a great background in finance from uh, Goldman Sachs and Bank of Israel. She already has a practice here uh, dedicated to shekel investments on financial planning and now works with me in marketing and client relationships. So together we kind of get able to deal with the unique problems of dual citizens, which of course involve taxes and reporting, uh, but also uh, currency issues. So uh, that's is good because I had a background in that beforehand, as you mentioned. So the specific issues are A, being underserved, B, being the tax issues, uh, C, being the fact that the uh, Israeli industry is not really very well developed in doing this. They're still kind of product-oriented for middle-class investors and then people that work with high niche. There are a couple other colleagues that work on these dual-citizen issues, but it's uh, – it's a market that has a need and uh, plenty of business for all of us to work with. And uh, also developed a network of professionals like yourself. We don't give specific tax advice, but are familiar with the basic issues. And uh, it's a great opportunity. I, I agree. I think you're, you're right. I think the local market, the particular the U.S. Uh, citizens living here are, are underserved. I think the, the institutions here don't still aren't, despite all the publicity, still are not up to speed in terms of the compliance side of it, and uh, there is still a, a big gap, despite what one might think in 2013, uh, and, and a global orientation. So I, I think what you're offering is something very much needed by, by the marketplace and my clientele in particular. 
let me move on to something a little more specific about how, how you work. In other words, we know there are plenty of places that are willing to work, when I say places, investment houses, investment advisors, when a person has one or two million dollars to invest nowadays. But where where does the investor with a hundred thousand, two fifty, five hundred thousand dollars go these days? Okay, I think that's a very well founded criticism in the States as well. As a matter of fact I'm just reading a book uh by a Los Angeles Times financial journalist that makes this criticism. Um I'm happy to work in a variety of ways, uh, hourly or fee consulting or full-time asset management. I would agree that someone under around 100000 could get comfortable with what we call a financial checkup, which would uh, often find some things they're not doing right and give them a good allocation to work with with very low costs and let them come in for a financial checkup uh, once or twice a year, probably even once a year. Other people are a little more hands-on and just with some advice, but are happy to uh, monitor it on their own. I'm happy to work with them that way. Certainly I feel when you get up to around 200000 250000 there for many people is a great benefit in working with someone that really hand-on asset manages because at that point you can uh, diversify your portfolio quite a bit and uh, take advantage of the uh, newer instruments. So um, I'm independent. I'm happy to work in various ways. I think it's a little bit of... Uh, doing some good with the business as well. It's an important issue for people. And, uh, you know, my business structure is such that I don't get any pressure to uh, push people away, which unfortunately, as you said, is occurring throughout the industry. And it's some investment advisors and certainly the, quote, full-time, full-service brokers are being discouraged from giving any kind of service other than Internet access to people under, let's say, 250000 I'm curious about this, you know, what you call a financial checkup. It sort of mirrors maybe some of my clients. So, you know, I, I, I see them once a year. Uh, we do their tax return. Uh, maybe questions come up. Maybe they don't come up. But we do at least have that yearly contact. Can you give me a, a rough range what something like that might cost for, for someone in that, you know, 100K? Right. Um, in this in the States, my fees uh, would be higher than here. I'm happy to give a discount here and relate to the market. In the States, it's uh, $200 to $250 an hour, so it winds up by I set the fees for a project so the hours don't run, and the fee there ranges from uh, $750 to about $1,250. Uh, but I, you know, I give the discounts uh, in relation to the other professionals in the market here. So the structure in shekels is discounted, let's put it that way for now. Okay, but it's certainly something that you would say someone in that range should. Uh, it's, it's a nice option because they can't, as you say, get, they can't get portfolio management for that kind of uh, amount of money, but uh, giving, getting direction and, and, and maybe seeing how things have changed uh, could certainly say that get, they could get that money back. Uh, right. Right, especially with the lower interest rates now that bother many people, it's able for just that per project fee to give people a portfolio that at least will generate them uh, a good deal more than the uh, money markets or CDs that we see in the States or even in Israel. So that's, that's an immediate benefit for people. Okay. So let me move on. I can remember back in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s, not that I was practicing in the 60s, but I do remember that as a child, 
that every, every, anyone who has seemed to have savings had, quote-unquote, a broker. Uh, today, very few people have a broker. What, what changed, and who, and who fills that? Okay, so that? definitely two things happen. The growth of discount brokers, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, others that you know of, uh, began even before the Internet, and then the Internet really uh, separated transactions for many people from the traditional, quote, full-time broker that supposedly had special insights into investments and special projects. Um, that kind of person is really, as you said, elevated towards trying to sell or market products to only high net worth individuals. And in fact, the major brokerage firms are really under a move to prune their client portfolio from people under 250000 and just direct them to their Internet websites. Um, on the same token, that same growth of discount brokers and the Internet access grew a lot of people to what my colleagues call moving from the dark side to independent registered investment advisors. We have a higher standard, actually, of fiduciary responsibility, which means what we have to do in the client's best interest as opposed to brokers who only have to make sure they do something suitable. Uh, and we benefit from both growth. The clients open accounts with uh, major discount brokers, so they get all those benefits of 24-7 access and debit cards and checks and low commissions. On the other hand, the advice is separated, and uh, I do the client advice. Uh, I have access to the Internet and the low-cost commissions. I can do my business thanks to the Internet uh, literally anywhere in the world, Israel, New York, Los Angeles. Um, I have access to all the information, market information and client information, literally on my phone, but certainly on my tablet and my laptop that's always with me. So it's kind of the best of both. It's what clients started to do on their own and uh, found that it was a little more complex, but at the same time the cost structure is very much transparent and you get what you pay for, as I said, anything from consulting to full-time asset management. So the industry has definitely changed. The uh, quote, full-time brokers are kind of in a crisis, uh, a lot of them emerging, that kind of thing. One thing that I'll mention that's also happened is very recently people went from the enthusiasm of thinking they could pick stocks uh, in the Internet craze to the period now where I think justifiably there's some lack of confidence in Wall Street and concern about the fluctuations. And the numbers show people have just fled to very low-cost, secure investments, and that's not a good thing for a globally diversified portfolio. Last year, the stock market had a great year, and people need to be diversified for the long term with good advice, knowing that they have investments that won't crash when the stock market crashes. And uh, I'm happy to do that advice to this underserved market. Right. It, it sounds to me that... Uh you know, even maybe people uh, long, or maybe it's just a nostalgia for the old days, or you know, the lo old days in terms of lack of volatility. Uh, it does sound, from what you're saying, the consumer can be better served today. Uh, there's a lot better options, uh, even though the market may be a bit more complex to the consumer. Yeah, there are low-cost options as alternatives to the uh, high-cost ones. The numbers show that either through advisors or through more people that have done their research, they're moving to these lower-cost instruments. But as I said, it's a shame to see people that have long-term needs uh, stuck with CDs that are earning really nothing and won't keep up with inflation.
again, as you mentioned when we opened our conversation, that you you do have an Israeli associate. So the question that always comes up for me and for my clients is, uh, how does someone in Israel, you know, typically let's say a U.S. citizen, uh, invest globally or invest uh, what I say tied to the current local currency or local economy and move away from being tied to the dollar. I saw for many years people moved here, lived here, uh, ran their, their lives, their businesses, but their investments were still sitting in a U.S. Uh, portfolio or U.S. broker, uh, and they seemed disconnected both from the local economy where they were living and, and certainly globally. So, so what, what, what can someone do to sort of hedge if that's a proper proper? Okay, term. so I'll use two analogies even to people in the States. Definitely people in the States that have near-term cash needs, uh, met with people that are still getting settled and shopping for an apartment. Uh, very near-term cash flow needs, especially if they're in transaction. In the States, we put it in very safe, low-cost uh, dollar investments. Here, uh, a similar thing, but with Sheko investments, they need uh, stability in terms of currency and uh, in terms of currency exchange, etc. in that part of the portfolio. And then everyone in the world really needs a globally diversified portfolio. Uh, plenty of growth is outside the U.S. The U.S. market pretty much influences the Israeli stock market. Uh, so a globally diversified portfolio, by definition, is invested in uh, currencies around the world. And currencies are really hard to predict, uh, but diversification helps. And here in Israel, obviously, when I was here uh, and the shekel was at 3.5, people worried about it. When the shekel was at 4 and they didn't do anything, they were kicking themselves. But uh, personally watching it, I think uh, central bank's not happy at 3.5 and not happy at 4.0. So somewhere around where we are here is probably towards the kind of mean rate that they'll see over the long term. So that's a good benchmark. But definitely, definitely, if you're shopping for an apartment, if you've got really big expenses, if you're still in transition with cash flow, you need to have that cushion just low risk, low currency risk, and uh, low market risk. And then the rest of it needs to be diversified globally, whether my clients are in the U.S. or uh, in Israel. Okay, so so continuing the Israeli side of things, uh, we, we found, have found many challenges for our clients investing in products that are U.S. tax compliant. As you mentioned before, uh, uh, there still tend to be here product-oriented, let's say, particularly using Israeli banks or investment houses. Is there a way for an U.S. citizen here to invest in shekels and be U.S. tax compliant? Okay, certainly you're much more expert with me, but uh, doing research and talking to other people in your professions, unfortunately a good part of the answer is no. Um, as far as I can see, and you're more familiar, any Israeli mutual fund, and it would be the case if you were an expat in London or Canada, uh, the same structure is subject to a rule called a PFIC, Passive Foreign Investment Company, which means they're subject to much more onerous t taxation, maybe taxation on instruments you don't even sell, uh, so that we get this strange situation where you can go to an Israeli firm and buy what they call a 2 sal, which is an index fund, Invested in the S&P 500, just like one you could buy in the U.S., but the taxation on the Israeli one is much higher. So that's an instrument to be avoided. 
the alternative maybe is individual Israeli bonds and maybe individual Israeli stocks. Lots of reasons that don't make me that comfortable with Israeli stocks. One is certainly higher commissions. Second one is that the big names like Teva and the Amdocs are what they call dual-listed. So really what moves the market in those stocks is in the U.S. market, and you can access it more cheaply. The rest of the Israeli market um, makes me a little uncomfortable. They still have the issues of uh, tycoonim, they call it, which is cross-ownership between banks and industrial companies. And we saw last year the deregulation of the cell phone industry led to a massive decline in uh, cell phone stock. So I'm not that interested in individual Israeli stocks, and unfortunately we've had problems with the uh, Israeli corporate bond market. So I think Debbie and I have concluded that the uh, real alternative is to be very conservative oh. in the shekel investments and really concentrate the rest of it in a U.S.-based, not necessarily U.S. dollar-based because of uh, the investments globally, kind of low-cost uh index instrument oriented portfolio which i'm happy to advise for people as i said either consulting or ongoing asset management so the choices are few in order to be uh maximize your tax return tax after tax income in the states it's also something that we see people bring over which are u.s municipal bonds or municipal bond funds and you lose the israeli tax benefit on those so that's kind of also a no-brainer to what we say to clean out of the portfolio when we do a checkup. Mm -hmm. In reading your material, one of the things that struck me uh, was about, uh, although, although investors always sort of look at the top line, what they're earning or what their, their investments have gone up, uh, I think very often my clients don't pay attention to what I say the bottom line, the cost maybe of, of manage, having managed investments or, or buying certain financial product. What are common hidden costs that investors are not aware of when they invest in the stock market? Okay, so the enemy of uh, most people that have moved, as I said, from kind of the dark side to the other side but stayed in the advisory business is to stay away from high fee and in general actively managed mutual funds. Uh, those have a couple disadvantages. One is the higher management fees within them which average uh, over 1%, whereas the uh, index instruments can be as low as 0.08%. So that's one for, for sure. Uh, they're off, also often um, what, what they call load funds, which American investors have pretty much moved away from, but I'll see them still on brokerage accounts that people have had for a long time in the States. So that would be a sales charge, either buying the fund or even liquidating the fund. So those are the two clear ones. They're also what we call hidden cost and actively managed funds. Um, one is just the transaction cost for the fund because they're often buying and selling uh, stocks in the portfolio. Second one is um, taxes because when they liquidate the stocks, you'll pay capital gains. So you wind up with this bad situation that they may own Apple stock from a basis uh, cost of the in the teens, but if you bought the fund last year, they may actually uh, sell the fund or part of the holdings at a profit from 10 even now to 500 plus. You get part of the capital gains on the, ta on the gain, but you might have only owned the stock uh, even when they had a loss on it. Uh, 
during the decline in the last part of this year. So there's the taxes. And then a third thing is what we call the cash drag. In other words, when I allocate the portfolio, we know how much we want to keep in the low-cost investments. But the actively managed fund may have someone that thinks he can time the market. So with the active fund, you think that portion is all invested in stocks. But in fact, if you look in the portfolio, he's holding 20% cash. So you hold more cash than you wanted to. And finally, we view it as a cost. There's a drift. In other words, you think you're buying a U.S. stock fund, but if you look down in the holdings, you'll see that they hold cash and some bonds. So again, it throws off your allocation. So that's why when we manage a portfolio, we use low-cost index instruments that don't trade, and uh, they're fully invested in the asset class. So you don't get any tax surprises at the end of the year, and you don't have those other costs that I mentioned. All right. That, that, that's really uh, interesting and helpful advice. Um, all right. Let, let me uh, wrap up. I, I know it's, we've just switched over from 212 to 213. Uh, I know, you know, if we knew what was going to happen, we'd all be very rich, but I still like your view uh, of forecast. What's your forecast for 213, and, and how do you think people should be di diversifying uh, in light of what you see coming or in the near Okay, future. so let me start off with two uh, general reactions to the request for a forecast. Number one is if you're going to have a long-term diversified portfolio, you should try to stay away from uh, allocating it based on a forecast. Two things that almost always turn out at the end of the year is uh, people flock to the hot-performing sector or the hot-performing fund from the previous year or what the conventional wisdom was in all the articles and forecasts that come around, as we said, at the turn of the year. So give an example. Last year, 2011, the best-performing asset class within stocks was utilities. I think the first time in decades, and sure enough, in 2012, it was at the bottom of the list. The other one that was almost uniform in conventional wisdom beginning of 2012 was to stay away from Europe, European stocks, European bonds, even talk of the collapse of the euro. Sure enough, uh, those turned out to be quite good investments. Uh, even Greek bonds performed great. I went to recommend it that kind of speculative thing, but just straightforward things like the German stock market and the European stock market in general turned out to be very good investments. Because in the long term, value has to match price. And if you look in the top holdings in the ETFs, the exchange-traded funds from either the European market and the German market, they're not really, they're global companies, Siemens, Bayer, Total, an oil company. So if you see that they're valued at a lower valuation, like price earnings, relative to General Electric or Exxon, probably is a good bet that uh, value will come in line with price in the long term. So that's one lesson. One thing that seems pretty clear is 2013 will be another low year for really interest rates around the world, um, maybe hiked a little bit in Israel, which means that a long-term Treasury bond, 10-year bond, with a yield well under 2%, as a long-term holding is not going to keep up with inflation. So people have to be a little more uh, moving out into other kinds of investments to earn some interest. Uh, 
Um, that's one thing that I do for sure for people, even in a checkup. It's a way to do it conservatively with a mix of uh, other types of government bonds, high-quality corporate bonds, and even some higher-yield bonds. I'm not a fan of dividend stocks for, for income. And then in the larger portfolio, I think the best thing to do is uh, not do what we call a point forecast, but a range forecast. So uh, in bonds, you may get some capital gains from lower interest rates, but you're not going to get much off the interest rates. So a good forecast is generally uh, the yield is going to be close to the return. In the stock market, one sector that a little stands out to me in terms of uh, a bit of a disconnect between price and value is usually the one that's been beaten down. Uh, things related to home building were beaten down quite a bit. They've come back quite a bit, but I still think if the U.S. economy and housing is recovering, which it seems to be, uh, that may be a good place to look. And then in general, I'd say a range forecast would be quite a bit lower than last year's 16%. And I'm comfortable, you know, somewhere to uh, a mean forecast of somewhere between 5% to 7% long-term in stocks. That's a pretty good long-term assumption. Again, the big caveat is not to have money in the stock market that you think you're going to need within a year. Inevitably, people do that. Inevitably, I get the phone call that people need cash, and inevitably, it takes place during the worst few days of the year. It's just kind of the Murphy's Law. <laughs> it just is. Uh -huh. And uh, so that's the main thing that I try to keep on top with, especially for people that are retired. We really map out what they're going to need, at least in the coming year. And really, especially here where there are a lot of retirees, even tied to pensions and other things, to really make sure we have a handle on that. And as I said, uh, people still in transition, especially shopping for a big ticket item that's really going to be important, like uh, their housing. Really, really, you can't try to capture last year's 16% on money that you're sure to need in the very near term. Just to clarify again, as you say, you know, that people grab onto what was hot last year or the trends. And, and I've read so much and actually heard a lot of people speak about uh, sort of the place to invest is, is stocks that have good dividend yields. And, and I, one of your remarks was that's not something you're in favor. And I'm just curious why you said to what I perceive counter trend or, or would be something counterintuitive. Yeah, I've kind of been in a big debate with people, but people that I trust, like the Vanguard Research. Uh, department points out that you still have capital risk. It's not a bond. Even though you may see the cash showing up in your account, uh, you know, a 5% move on the stock wipes out even a hefty dividend. So um, I think there's kind of this strange thing where the money goes into one pocket and people see the cash flow. On the other hand, uh, the principal value goes down. So I still can't figure out the logic when someone gets $3 in dividends, but the stock has dropped $5 saying that you uh, made out well. That's certainly not the case, which is for most people that at some point someone's going to care about the uh, principal value. Certainly if you're uh, accumulating money for drawing it down in the future, and even uh, most people just can't live off the cash flow, and even if they are, they do care about what's left over, uh, for children, grandchildren, or even, uh, we hope, for some tzedakah as well.
So I just okay. think it's a misnomer, and the tax treatment may be negative. Right, I understand, yes. All right, so just uh, just how would our listeners get in touch with you? Just uh, some kind of, we'll be posting this, of course, at our website, but uh, if someone wants to reach I'm writing you. more on my blog, so if you want to get an idea of how I do look at things, uh, sensibleinvestments.blogspot.com. And I'm also, and Debbie, are really available to meet people face-to-face or in seminars, give them an idea how we work, they can get some free advice, and uh, they can get to know us both uh, face-to-face as well. Well, Larry, I, I thank you for taking the time. And uh, this, this sunny Sunday morning, at least, uh, the snow has passed, and there's no clouds in the sky, and uh, it was great talking to okay, you. Okay, we had our white Jerusalem, and now uh, the sun is back. Thank you so much. Right. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.